Equality. It's been an issue for years, especially in the workplace and especially when it comes to gender. Men and women haven't always been given the same opportunities, but there have always been women who challenged the status quo. Take the story of Rosie the Riveter. During World War II, women at home took over factory jobs from men heading to war. These women worked as riveters, welders, machinists, and woodworkers, even professional baseball players. When the war ended, some women weren't thrilled about giving their jobs back. By the 1960s, women had begun demanding equal opportunities from their employers, and they weren't the only ones. President John F. Kennedy signed an executive order that called for affirmative action in 1961. It required government contractors to, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. Four years later, sex was added to that list. I'm Shanna Farrell, and you're listening to The Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center at the University of California, Berkeley. This season, we're heading to the East Bay Regional Park District for a three-part mini-series. All of the episodes are set in the East Bay Parks and are about people who've made a difference. Some are stories that you're already familiar with, but haven't heard quite like this. Others are stories you might not know, but should. We're calling this series Hidden Heroes. In this episode, we dig into the history of equality in the district, following two women throughout their careers on the heels of affirmative action. We'll be featuring interviews from our East Bay Regional Park District Parkland Oral History Project, which is archived in our home at the Bancroft Library. Affirmative action has come to mean a lot of things to different people. But for Californians in the 1970s, it meant that employers were paying new attention to the composition of their workforce and hiring women into positions that had previously been held by men. One of them was Julie Hazelden. There were like 200, I think it was 225 people applied for this job. And the park district at the time was interested in doing, uh, uh, implementing some affirmative action and trying to get women into uh, non-traditional jobs. In an effort to hire more women, the East Bay Regional Park District sent park rangers to attend classes at local colleges and recruit female employees. Rachel McDonald was one of these early recruits. Well, I applied, and uh, I got an interview. And mostly, I was asked appropriate questions, uh, you know, based on my application and, um, and the job. I think the only one that I thought was inappropriate was when the head of personnel asked me if I thought I'd be able to be dependable since I had a child. Rachel got the job in 1974. I kind of fudged a little bit. I said I'd taken out a tree when I hadn't. But, <laughs> but uh, I really lucked out being hired. I really did. As a struggling single parent, this job was significant. Well, it was a whole change because... You know, I had been on welfare, and when I was hired, I remember telling my my social worker from welfare that I, you know, I could go. I didn't have to. I didn't need it anymore because I had this job, and he was so happy and impressed because I was going to be making more money than him. 
Rachel went from spending her days in a classroom to working outside, performing maintenance work. And I loved that work for most of the time I was on it. It was really hard physical work. You know, we'd pave roads and uh, prune trails, work with the heavy equipment operators on trails. And I did operate heavy equipment sometimes. That wasn't really my thing. I, <laughs> I talked with another ranger once who was on the crew. And about, I said, oh, I hated it because of this. I don't like all the fumes. And, blah, blah. and he just loved it because it made. he said it makes me feel more manly. Rachel was one of the first and only women to be hired into a position that involved physical responsibilities. The women who worked for the district were mostly in administrative and educator roles. It was all like mostly clerical and naturalist. I think maybe in um, planning and design, but in the field, no. Rachel was still largely unique in the district until 1980 when Julie Hazelden was hired by the Park District. I was scared to death, and I think they saw my fear as enthusiasm, which worked out <laughs> fine. And um, so I just, uh, I was absolutely delighted when I got the job. And it was tough. Julie was hired as a truck driver and a forklift operator. She learned to operate heavy machinery from her boyfriend, who was a sculptor in West Oakland. Julie's a self-described tomboy. She wasn't worried about what her male coworkers would think. The guys that were working there, a lot of them were like, well, I can't do that. And um, I think I might have been hired in, by a guy who wanted to prove that women couldn't do the work. You want me to hire a woman? I'll hire a woman. Watch this. And then he gave me jobs to do I didn't know, like um, unloading uh, pallets of concrete by hand, which he never would have done. He was ne I heard l years later, he said, I don't know why you did that. I would have said no. <laughs> was like... Both Rachel and Julie worked out of the Tilden Corpyard, which was where the district kept their heavy machinery and equipment, as well as maintenance supplies. Julie describes it as a bit of a boys club where she was a novelty. So my first day, I guess I was loading a truck and all these guys, like from the main office, came to see this chick. And so these guys were leaning up, watching me, leaning up on the bat, on the, the warehouse wall. And they're smoking cigarettes. I don't know these. I should never do it. And then um, and holding the clipboard and you know, kind of pretending like they were actually doing some work, but they were actually just watching the new kid. And so one of the guys who later became my manager said. So you think you can do a man's job, huh? And I said, you mean smoke a cigarette, hold a clipboard, and watch somebody else work? I can do better than that. Anyway, I said something <laughs> along those lines. Everybody laughed, and so that kind of broke the ice. Rachel says a sense of humor was a necessity at the Tilden Corpyard. I really got along with the guys. I didn't let the way some of them talk, I didn't like shut down or get, you know, about it. Uh, to some point I could kid back about it and I just, I joked a lot with people so that they enjoyed being around me. Plus I just tried to do a, a good job. I'd have things happen where people, men would make comments, you know, that like the guy at the place where he'd pick up the base rock, you know, and 
But mostly, for me, it was okay. I just really got along well with people. But not every interaction was as easy for Rachel to manage. When she started with the district, a coworker made unwanted advances towards her. He wanted to be more involved with me than I wanted to be. And it was just, I don't know, it was very unpleasant. She reported this to her supervisor. To the unit manager who would do nothing because he said, well, this is, it doesn't matter in terms of the best interest of the district. You should just, you know, work it out or go somewhere else. Rachel chose the second option and went looking for another job in the district. But switching roles wasn't easy. Not every supervisor was willing to hire women. One manager even told her not to apply. There was an opening on the Roads and Trails crew, and I went to talk to, he was the chief of maintenance. He was, so he was the guy that the Roads and Trails supervisor reported to. And he said, I told him I wanted to, I'd like to uh, apply for that opening. And he told me that he really didn't want a woman woman on the crew because I wouldn't be able to do as much work as the guys or something. Discouraged but not dismayed, Rachel took the matter higher up the chain. She went to the chief of administration, who was under the general manager. So he told the chief of maintenance that uh, you can't say that kind of thing, and if she wants that job, you know, and if no one else has applied... She gets the job. So the chief of maintenance wasn't happy with me about it, but I wanted that job. Julie had less trouble fitting in, even if the space was clearly dominated by men. The, the mechanic shop at Tilden at the time, great bunch of guys, liked them all, but they had a lot of pornography on the walls. And I mean, like, pornography. I didn't really even hardly notice it. I go, oh yeah, whatever. At my years being a teamster, I was, I was surrounded by it. It was just like wallpaper, didn't even notice it. But it bothered others who she worked with, one woman in particular named Maggie. And it definitely ruffled Maggie's feathers. So Julie decided to step in. If someone else is gonna be offended, then I will absolutely support them. And it was like, she's going, no, that is absolutely not acceptable. And it was like, really? yeah, I guess you're right. It's offensive, isn't it? You wouldn't, you know, want anyone to come in here and, and feel uncomfortable. Julie and Maggie's male co-workers weren't happy that the women were rocking the boat. So the guys were very resistant. And so these guys were going, no, no, what are you talking about? We just love beautiful bodies. It's nothing ugly. They're beautiful bodies. And then some other woman, I can't remember who, got a picture of out of a, um, a gay porn, male gay porn pinup and went down when no one was looking, put it up on the wall because it was a beautiful body. They ripped that thing down, tore it in little tiny pieces, said, oh, that disgusting that was. And that was kind of, they kind of went, hmm, wait a minute. This seemed to open up some of the men's eyes. Anyway, so Maggie was the one that um, made that happen and got it to be a G-rated place. At first they're going, well, if you don't like it, don't come in here. Well, I have to come in here. I have to get my truck serviced. And so they resisted and um, Maggie prevailed. Julie encountered other setbacks at the Tilden Corpyard, but she always seemed to approach it the same way. She dug into her work, determined to do her job well. 
I was never going to play the girl card. Um, and uh, I became really good at, at the forklift. It was an old forklift that you had to double clutch. And, um, you know, it was really hard to operate. But just doing it so much, I got really good at it. Rachel, by comparison, leaned into her feminine side. Well, it's embarrassing to say, but I did more, I acted more cutesy then. I was competent, I was knowledgeable, but sometimes I undercut myself by acting too cutesy. And I always had my shirt but unbuttoned one button too many. It was actually my husband when we were getting to know each other. But then he told me once, you know, you got to button that one up because if you want to be respected, that's part of it. And from then on, I did. Rachel learned to command respect by being more confident in herself and her abilities and by compartmentalizing aspects of her professional identity. I still like to joke and have fun, but that part of it, this, the quote, sexy part of it, stop. Eventually, both Rachel and Julie found their groove. Both were tapped for a carpenter's apprenticeship which meant higher pay. Rachel applied in 1978. I spent a lot of time around the carpenters in the courtyard, you know, talking with them or fooling around, and uh, I just thought, well, it might be fun. I might enjoy the work. Julie applied in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there were lots of people that applied. Um, they had two positions to fill. And again, I think... It wasn't the primary focus, but they wanted to impl implement some uh, more affirmative action. But the two guys that they chose, Fred Porter and Dennis Waspy, both happened to be white guys. And so it was over. That day we found out that they were named, but somehow, I don't know how, it was heaven. And um, there was a meeting after that, and somebody went to bat and saying, we need to get a woman in the trades and they figured that I was the best candidate for that. So they included another position, which was, you know, huge in funding and, and planning. The Carpenter's Apprenticeship was a big commitment. And so the, the program included 7,000 hours on the job, 16 one-week classes. So it was four classes a year for four years. And each one of those classes was one week long. Julie remembers her first few weeks. The first few weeks and months were very bloody fingers, <laughs> blisters, hard work. But Rachel found that she didn't enjoy the work. Well, I didn't like being up on a roof, you know, that not a flat roof. She also wasn't getting much respect from the men in her program. They wouldn't let me do anything, really. The person who was head of all the crews like that, he didn't treat me very well, and he didn't like having a female there. Things hadn't changed much when Julie started the program a few years later. People weren't as nice there. They were more competitive, young, and I was 30 at this point. No, I was 35, 35. And so I was like old, and these guys are all young and crazy and... Um, anyway, it wasn't always easy. It was uncomfortable because, you know, at work I, I knew people. I just felt comfortable. I felt accepted. You know, there were always a couple jerks, but I would avoid them and no problem there. But um, even the teachers at the apprenticeship school would make wisecracks and, 
you know, just be pretty much unpleasant and kind of let me be in the class. And, um, and they were just very, it was a very competitive, very guy thing. After two months, Rachel ultimately decided to withdraw from the apprenticeship. It was just, I realized, when I go to work in the morning, I was so depressed. It, you know, so I thought, this really isn't for me. Julie, on the other hand, decided to stick it out because the payoff was worth it for her. So if we had completed our, our apprenticeship, we were going to, uh, we had earned that job. After completing the apprenticeship, Julie went on to work as a journeyman for the next 19 years. It, it felt really good. It felt good. I felt it was well compensated, um, you know, as far as um, the pay. Rachel took another path. After she left the apprenticeship program, she went back to the roads and trails crew. While she was deciding what to do next, she and her friend Dennis got to talking. And we both realized we wanted to do something different. And we, we came up with this idea that we'd do an exchange for two months where he would work on roads and trails and I would work on Redwood and we'd just try it out. The switch gave Rachel the opportunity to do more administrative work, which she enjoyed. I was in the office more and I discovered that I was really good at dealing with personnel and I, that I, I was really good at treating everybody the same. Rachel found that she had a talent for managing people. I just discovered I was really good at planning the work and, uh, and, and figuring out what people like to do and what they were good at and giving them opportunities to do it, to do new things. You know, I would always meet with staff and, and ask them what their interests were and what if you could do whatever you wanted on the job, what you'd like to do, and then I'd try to find something that fit in with that. Motivated by this discovery, Rachel began taking management classes at UC San Francisco. This earned her a promotion to unit manager where she got to play to her strengths. And I was always really clear about what I expected. And ultimately, like when I was a unit manager, I made sure everyone in my unit had a park uh, job clarification. I met with each crew and we went through and just talked about and agreed upon what the expectations were. Because I think that's a big deal. A lot of people don't know what their boss wants. Her male colleagues gave her more respect, which was evident when she encountered sexism outside of the district. And I remember on a few occasions where we'd, I'd be standing with the contractor, maybe one of his guys, and then with some of my crew. And I remember the contractor looking to one of my male staff and saying, so what do you want to happen here? And he said, you're, you're talking to the wrong person. She's the supervisor. They were good about it, you know, and they weren't, they didn't seem to be resentful. Her response to this treatment changed too. I didn't lay a big trip on anybody, depending on how they were treating me. Like I had to tell one guy who had a habit of always calling me babe. And so I, I had to tell him more than once, don't call me babe. Finally, he stopped. Julie and Rachel made different decisions about the apprenticeship program but their choices had a lasting effect on both of their careers. Julie went on to work on the roads and trails crew in a management role. But then I was also running projects. So I would do the drawings, I would uh, do the scope of work, write up the contract, write up the bid proposal, get the contractors to come on site, select the 
contractor, develop the contract documents, run the project, be on the job, and, uh, and then pay. Julie's work earned her praise from her supervisors, including Stephen Garrett, her manager of several years. Julie Hazelton became the first women carpenter. <laughs> she could dish it out like she got it, which was nice. And uh, I don't think there's anybody who disliked her. I mean, she's just a wonderful lady. She continued working on the roads and trails crew until she retired in 2011. Affirmative action ended in California in November of 1996 when Proposition 209 amended the state constitution to prohibit employers from considering race, sex, or ethnicity, specifically in the areas of public employment, public contracting, and public education. However, affirmative action had lasted long enough to get Rachel and Julie into the district the two women had a lasting impact on the culture of the organization. While Rachel made changes at an administrative level, prioritizing equal treatment, Julie was a trailblazer in the field and has seen more women entering the trades. As a result of Rachel and Julie's work and others like them, the district became a leader in gender equality. It was a really a forerunner for including and uh, appreciating women and uh, yeah, a lot of women have become supervisors and managers and, and they're doing great jobs and gender and color and size and shape does not matter. For a short window of time, women like Rachel and Julie gained access to jobs that had previously been out of reach. And the ripple effects of those hires have been paving new pathways for women into this type of work and redefining what is and isn't possible in certain roles. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. This episode was produced by Francesca Fenzi and me, Shanna Farrell. It features interviews with Rachel McDonald, Julie Hazelden, and Stephen Garrett, who are a part of the East Bay Regional Park District Parkland Oral History Project. A special thanks to the district and Beverly Ortiz. To learn more about these interviews, visit our website listed in the show notes. I'm your host, Shanna Farrell. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix, and please join us next time.